Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about honing our habits and finessing our focus in the age of digital distraction. My first guest is Chris Bailey. He is the author of The Productivity Project, and he's in the house, and we're talking about his newest book, Hyper Focus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. Ooh, Chris Bailey in the house. How are you In today? the house. I in the house. In the house. I am... Awesome. I'm awesome because I get to be with you talking about a subject that I am happily crazy about, which is productivity. You've got this amazing new book with lots of tips and strategies. Talk about why, why you wrote this book. (laughs) Yeah. So so when the first book came out, the the Productivity Project, I noticed a sort of uncomfortable truth with with the way that I was working. And mind you, it was a book about productivity. It was sharing some lessons on how to become more productive. But I realized that when it came out, I I, I was more distracted at that point than I had been in years, even though I've been telling people that we should resist distractions because they compromise our attention. They lead us to become less happy. They make us less productive. Uh, And so I realized like, okay, maybe there's a couple things going on here. Maybe if I'm facing this as somebody who's such a a big nerd about productivity, other people are too. But maybe there's also a bigger picture that I was missing with regard to how we can focus better every day. Because frankly, you know, most of us, we're looking down uh, at our phones these days. We're not looking out into the world where we're connecting with people less. We remember less. We're we're seeing less meaning in in what's around us. And so maybe there's a, a better answer out there. Well, I think that you hit the nail on the head. These digital devices, while they are life altering, they are doing something to our brains that might not be so great. 
Oh yeah, there's one study that I love that that's actually kind of uh, illuminating. They they had one group of people, they measured their their, uh, chances at at getting PTSD. And one group of people watched six or more hours of news coverage about the Boston Marathon bombings. and, And they found that those people were more likely to get PTSD than somebody who was at the bombing and personally affected by it. And, you know, after encountering a few ideas like this, I started to realize like, okay, this is bigger than just our productivity. Like productivity is kind of a, a, a side effect of managing our attention well. But really the bigger idea here is that the state of our attention determines the state of our lives. And so if we're distracted in each moment and that leads us to feel overwhelmed, these moments don't exist in isolation. They accumulate day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year to create a life that feels distracted and overwhelming. And the same is true if we really notice the the quality of the information that we take in, where we notice that the meaningful conversations we're having, like like the conversation we're having right now or, or had before uh, we, we hit the, the record button on the show. Uh, and so, you know, I think the more productive and meaningful things we choose to focus on, the more productive and meaningful we feel our life is because we don't just, we, we regain control of, of our attention from the world around us. I agree. I limit my time with these gadgets because I feel that the yeah. quality of my life is diminished when I am in that 24-7 cycle, albeit news or on the phone yeah. or on the tablet. Um, talk a little bit about how working fewer hours can actually increase our productivity because it's it's counterintuitive, <laughs> yeah. right? It, it is, but it, it kind of has the same effect as a deadline, for example. So so if you have an important uh, report to write, um, for, for example, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to spend the afternoon writing this report, uh, say, I'm going to s- schedule a timer for 45 minutes uh, in which to hyper-focus on just doing this one thing. So I'm going to choose what I pay attention to. I'm going to tame distractions and and say no to the ones that come up or maybe capture them on a distractions list as I'm trying to focus. You will find that in those 45 minutes, you accomplish more than you would in an entire afternoon's worth of distracted work. And this is the power of managing our attention well, I think, is when we don't take control of our attention, our, our attention naturally gravitates to anything that's one of three things. So we naturally pay attention to anything that we find pleasurable. We naturally pay attention to anything that is threatening. And we naturally pay attention to anything that's new and novel. And so we even have a novelty bias uh, embedded within our mind where it releases a hit of dopamine for every new and novel thing we we focus on. And so like you said, this, this traps us into the cycle of focusing on what's latest and loudest and not really focusing on what's important. Uh, but you know, if you think back to your last most productive day, you probably weren't tending to a bunch of distractions. You probably had a clear uh, sign of what was important. You probably were on a deadline. So that kind of narrowed uh, your focus in and, and made your work a bit more threatening, which which led you to focus on it. Um, and you probably accomplished more in one hour of, of that deep focus than you would maybe in some entire days. And, and so I think this is the jump that we need to make is that 
time management doesn't matter as much anymore when we're surrounded with so many distractions. What matters more than anything else right now is how we manage our attention. You know, if you look down at the, the uh, you know, if you walk down a Barnes and Noble or I'm, I'm in Canada, so we, we've, we have a bookstore called Indigo here. You'll, you'll see does hundreds of books devoted to time management, but most of them won't allow you to kind of reclaim this attention that you have, which is frankly more limited. It's more in demand. It's more necessary than it's ever been that we use this ingredient well. So I think by shrinking how long we give ourselves to do something, we can use it that much better to, to kind of simulate this, this deadline. I really like and agree with what you just shared. I work from lists. I have multiple lists. You know, I've yeah. got that sort of the core dump, my brain dump list where I get it all out. And then I've got the list within the list. And then I've got the days list. And I find that when I prioritize in this way, I am much more efficient because I do know that, that multitasking yeah. is a myth. It just does not happen. Yeah, it, it just doesn't work. You, you know, we can't actively focus on more than one thing at one time. Um, you know, multitasking does work in some very limited situations. Uh, it, it works when we can do something without thought. <laughs> and so, you know, who's to say that we can't uh, walk down the street while we chew bubble gum, while we avoid the cracks in the sidewalk, while we listen to a podcast or, or a show like this one. Uh, and so, you know, when the things are habitual, they only require active attention when we need to uh, focus on them and intervene. We can run while we uh, breathe, while we listen to, to music and kind of half pay attention to the TV that's on in front of us at the gym that's showing these stupid cable news highlights that, that do compromise our happiness. And and so I think, you know, with habits, we can. But like you said, with anything that's important, with, that, with anything that's worth prioritizing that you decided to do ahead of time, focus on it. You know, really, really deeply focus on it. And, you know, that's easier said than done. That's why there's there's an entire book <laughs> that I wrote here that that will help us get to the state. But it's worth doing because, uh, again, you know, the state of our attention is what determines the state of our lives. Very well said. Let's talk about how to tame distraction, like a, a couple yes. of specific tools, because we all can theoretically agree. Yes, I need to tame the monkey mind. Well, well how, do you, right. how do you do that? Uh, I think you got to start with what your problem distractions are. And, and so, you know, in the book, the, the biggest, longest chapter, as I'm sure you saw, <laughs> was this idea of taming distractions, because, you know, the idea of it is so nice. But the fact of the matter is what we see uh, as a distraction is just something that in the moment is more attractive to us to focus on than what we truly want to be accomplishing because it's more pleasurable, because it's more threatening, because it's more novel. But we can tame these things ahead of time to, to great effect. One thing that I highly recommend people do is there, there's this amazing grayscale mode on our phones. And so if you if you go into your phone's settings and you search for, for grayscale, G-R-A-Y scale, um, it, it turns your phone's screen black and white. And so it's, it's like you're reading a newspaper instead of really uh, engaging with social media and things like that. And it's a stupid hack. It doesn't really change the, the functionality of your phone unless maybe you're a graphic designer or something, but it, it changes how uh, pleasurable 
and threatening and novel uh, an object of attention your phone is. And I will make an argument that your time on your phone will be cut in half because it hooks into your attention less often. Um, you know, this is something I highly recommend people do. Uh, doing a phone swap. And so when my fiance and I were out for dinner or something, we happened to bring our phones instead of, you know, leaving them at home, uh, which we do about half the time. But sometimes you, you know, you get into a debate with somebody, you want some, something to look as, uh, something up on. So we swap phones. And so we each have something to take pictures with. We have something to, to capture ideas. We can text one another ideas that, that come up. But still, we don't have a personalized world of distraction available to us at all, all points in time. Um, email, maybe to, to give folks a third one, because everybody on the planet struggles with email, is to, um, you know, bring some awareness to email. Because I think, you know, it's like keeping a food lock where you eat about a third less when you chart uh, everything that you eat over the course of the day. When you uh, simply keep a tally of how frequently you check for new email messages, um, you'll find that you check for new messages more often than you think you do. Uh, the average knowledge worker checks their email 88 times over the course of the day. And so really becoming aware of it, maybe only checking for messages if you have the time and the attention and the energy to deal with whatever might have come in to, to bring that deliberateness to email as well. Let's talk a little bit about the contagion of these digital devices. And, and I'll give a, a kind of a funny example. The other night I was out to dinner <laughs> with my parents who are in their 70s. And I am very aware that when I'm with people, I'm going to put the phone away. I mean, I just don't, yeah. don't take it out. I'm sitting there and my parents who are in their seventies are checking their emails. Oh, and I'm like, whoa. And, and I'm resisting the <laughs> urge, right? Because it's a contagion, right? One person takes it out and then the other person takes it out. And pretty soon everybody's checking their emails. It's like the yawn, right? When one person yeah. starts to yawn and, oh, I, and I, it's kind of kooky. Yeah. You know, by the way, you know, when we flip our phone face down on the table, when we're with somebody that we love, we think we're being respectful of them, but we still have been shown to check it when it's face down on the table every three to five minutes. And, uh, you know, there, there was one study that they measured uh, coffee shop patrons. It's kind of a creepy study because you imagine like some guy just sitting there with a with a notepad observing people in the coffee shop and how often they check their phone. But but when they interview people afterward that left the phone on the table, they found that those people uh, felt less close to one another afterward. Uh, they felt less connected to one another afterwards. And here's kind of the sad part is they, they even related their relationship quality as being lower than those who, who dove deep into a conversation. And, and so I think tactics like doing the phone call and we, you know, you probably talk about this a lot on the show. We underestimate how contagious our behavior is. You know, if we're checking our phone, it, it suddenly gives everybody permission to, to check their phone. So, you know, meetings where there's a phone basket there, uh, family dinners where we have a no phone policy. Uh, so, so tactics like these and simply modeling behavior, uh, it, it, say if, if you're a leader of a team, you know, if you check your phone less often, your team will check their phone less often. And meetings too. And so I think that's a big part of it as well. And it's about training the brain, right? Like it's it, mm -hmm. in order to break that habit of being um, digitally distracted, you need to work at it. You need to practice at it and then replace it with something that is more interesting. 
And I think lowering how stimulated we are by default as well, because when we, you know, what one of the most alarming statistics I encountered over the course of uh, of writing this thing was that on average we focus on one thing for only forty seconds before we switch to doing something else. Yikes! So we pick, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you know, th- this is measuring uh, employees at Microsoft, and they found that when these employees they, they were working in front of a computer and they had an app like Slack or or instant messaging open, they switched every 35 seconds. And so every half of a minute, and you know, if you think back again to that last most productive day that you were just thinking about, chances are you weren't flipping around between a bunch of different things every 35 to 40 seconds. And, and it just, you know, this goes to show this, this deeper problem that, that you were just touching on is we're so stimulated by default, you know, because our mind releases dopamine for every new and novel thing we focus on, it essentially rewards us for multitasking. And, and this makes us feel more productive than we actually are. It's, it's kind of like working on a sleep deficit. If we're working on a sleep deficit, we rate our productivity as being higher than it actually is. And I would wager uh, that a similar thing happens when we're busier. You know, it doesn't matter what we're busy about, but when we switch between things more often, there's more dopamine coursing through our brain, the, well, one of the main cl- pleasure chemicals. And, and so we feel more stimulated. We feel like we're getting more accomplished, even though productivity is not about how busy we are. It's not about how much we produce. It's about how much we accomplish over the course of the day. And, and so I think, you know, this really is something that we need to chip away at over time. You know, we're so stimulated by our environments by default, but uh, but but the most meaningful experiences that we have and, and the most productive days that we have, they don't come from this stimulation. They, they come from being less stimulated so we can reflect a bit more on our experiences so we can see the meaning behind conversations. You know, if you leave your phone at home when you go to a restaurant with somebody and they go to the washroom, you have no choice but to let your mind wander to, to how meaningful the conversation is, to, yeah. to what you might want to chat about next to to something you forgot to talk about to some to some story you want to share instead of just looking at your phone uh during that time and so i I think that's a big part of it too i'm so enjoying our conversation and so hyper focused that i've blown (laughs) past the break to learn more about chris bailey and his work and the book we're speaking about today hyper focus how to be more productive in a world of distraction please visit a life of productivity.com And on Twitter, you can find Chris at Chris underscore Bailey. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery. 
which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about honing our habits and finessing focus in an age of digital distraction with my guest, Chris Bailey, who is the author of Hyperfocus, How to Be More Productive in a World of Distraction. Let's talk about the five top activities that make us happiest. This is fascinating. Yeah, th- this is fascinating. This comes from uh, a focus study or, or a mind wandering study uh, of all places. And they examined, they, they sampled about, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people. I think they got about 250,000 responses at, at the end of the, the survey. And they sampled people uh, and asked, asked them throughout the day periodically, what are you doing in this moment? Are you focused on it? And is your mind wandering? And how happy are you? How would you rate your subjective happiness? And they found from all this data that the things that lead us to the greatest amount of focus are also the things that make us the happiest. You know, what a fun finding by the way, as a tangent, you know, the more focused we are, the, the happier we are. But the top five things that lead us to focus, number five, listening to music, uh, number four, I was listening to, to some music before we got on here, some Ed Sheeran. It's very depressing, but I find sad music happy for some reason. Uh, number four is playing. <laughs> uh, number three is talking and investing in our relationships. Number two is exercising. And number one is making love. And and so, you know, the more of these things we do, maybe in conjunction with one another, you, you can make love. Well, making love is kind of exercise. It's a way of investing in your relationship. It's a way of playing. And you can listen to music at the same time, too. So if you do that all day, every day, you will be very happy. Yeah. And I think what's <laughs> so interesting about being so distracted in our lives, that the distraction leads to stress, that leads to fatigue, yeah that leads to just needing to put oneself in timeout at certain points in the day, which leads to the disconnection from the very people that we find the most joy from. And we're making less love, having less sex, feeling less good, and then looking for that release of dopamine and oxytocin and endorphin in strange places. Yeah, we get it from Instagram instead of the person that we're with. Yeah. And this is like... um this is something that I think is is what makes our our attention so powerful. It's like no no fillet of salmon will and uh, this comes to my mind because this is what I'm having for lunch today. Um, no fillet of salmon will be as delicious as the fillet of salmon you focus on with one hundred percent of your attention. No no cup of coffee will be as delicious as the one you focus on one hundred percent. No uh, conversation with a loved one will be as meaningful as the one you focus on 100%. And this is a cost of switching between things uh, so often and, and being so stimulated, looking looking for stimulation uh, from Instagram instead of from a conversation with a loved one is, is there's less 
depth to that. that. There's less focus to that when we're constantly bouncing between things. And by the way, you know, this cost of switching between things, this would honestly be fine if we were able to switch between things seamlessly. But there's this phenomenon called you know, to nerd out a little bit, but I feel like, uh, you know, it's an audience of smart people. There, there's this phenomenon called attention residue, where this this means that something uh, still exists within our attention from what we were just doing as we switched to doing something else. And so we're having this conversation right now, but a part of us might be recalling what we were doing right before we were having this conversation. And when we switch between things every 40 seconds, as an example, when we don't dive deep into the experiences, we don't really focus and become immersed in any one thing because a a part of us is always remembering what we were just doing, which prevents us from becoming immersed in what's in front of us. And so this is yet another cost of this constant, constant switching is we we listen to music less, we play less, we invest in our relationships less, we make love less, we exercise less. These are all things that that take longer than 40 seconds to do. Yeah. This is the, the cost of doing business in today's society. But the, the good news is that, uh, because we can teach old dogs and young dogs new tricks yeah. that we, <laughs> we can train ourselves through practice. You know, the, the repetition allows yeah. the brain to become reprogrammed basically. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's something that we have to work at over time. But, you know, when you become less stimulated, you work more deeply, you experience life more deep, you enjoy food more. It's it's amazing. Like every part of your life increases the amount of control. The, the, the fascinating thing about uh, how much control we have over our attention, which which is, uh, you know, anti-correlated with how stimulated we are, is that the, the research around that is pretty conclusive. You know, the more control we have over our attention, the more we remember, the less guilt and doubt we experience, the less we feel overwhelmed, the stronger our sense of purpose is with what we're doing. And so there's such power in that idea. You know, many years ago, you don't know, but I'm going to tell you, many years ago, I had a conversation with Dr. Ellen Langer at Harvard, and she's been studying mindfulness for probably I want to say 35 years. And she doesn't study it from a Buddhist perspective. She she studies it from a very westernized perspective. And she said, here's the deal. We are either mindful. And when we are mindful, we are fully present. We are fully aware. We are conscious of what we're doing. We're conscious of what we're saying and our actions over mindless, which is the absence of those qualities. And when we're in that yeah. state of mindfulness or full presence, um, we find that Oh, we have to say we're sorry less. We don't do things, you know, that are wrong. We don't mess up as much because we are conscious and aware of our action. There was a productivity experiment I conducted many, many, many years ago during what became the Productivity Project, where I meditated for 35 hours over the course of a week, and Whoa. you know, while do it while trying to focus outside, and it, you know, it, it was inspired by meditation retreats I've been on and stuff like that. But, but something that my fiance now now fiance told me back then really kind of took me back, and uh, she said, you know what, Chris, like I've never felt more loved than I do right now with you doing this experiment. Mm. And it, it led me to, to the idea that, you know, what, what is love, but, but sharing 
quality attention with somebody as well as quality time. And uh, I think it is about that idea of mindfulness. You know, the, the, if you look at the the title of the book, Hyper Focus, it's so intense. It's so, you know, and the cover is very vivid and stuff like that. But, but I think it's really not as intense as it sounds. It's just about bringing uh, our, our deliberate attention to something. It's about, um, you know, taking back control of our attention. You know, the world so often decides what we focus on. So when we focus on things with deliberateness and with intentionality behind what we do, you know, that that's where we become more productive and, and experience more meaning in our life. And, you know, if there's one thing that that doing such a deep dive into productivity has, has shown me from all the research, from all the experiments, from all the experts I've had the chance to chat with, it, it's that what lies at the core of what it means to be productive is not working faster, 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 more, more, more. Uh, it's doing the right things, first of all. And it's doing that with intention. You know, it's really this intentionality that not only make, is what makes us human, but what leads us to become more productive. Because when we have more time to do than more stuff to do than time to do it in, it's so critical that we turn off this autopilot mode, that yeah. we become mindful, not mindless, that we notice what we're focusing on so we can actually realign it to what's important. Let's go back for a second to the lovemaking metaphor, because I think this yeah. applies to other areas of our life outside of our intimate relationships. And that is that when, when we make love, we do so with presence. We're fully there. Mind, body, spirit, emotion, all the senses, everything is switched on. Yeah. If we apply that same practice to these other areas of our lives, how we show up in the world, how we approach and complete projects, how we engage with the world out there, we'll be happier. Yeah. Make love to your work. Make love to life. Make love to life. That's right. I mean, it sounds a little goofy. I mean, but, yeah. but you know, I can say that unabashedly because, you know, yeah. I'm middle-aged and I'm sassy, so I don't care what people think. That's right. <laughs> you know? Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> Who gives up? Bleep. But, yeah. you know, but really, like, if, if we approach our life in this way, mm -hmm. I think that we will be happier and probably more productive. Yeah. You know, there, there's been a lot of research on flow. You know, this idea of uh, that me high chicks at me high yeah. coin where it's like, uh, oh, yeah, I can I know how to pronounce that. Um, it, it's funny because the the editor that, that edited Hyperfocus is the same uh, editor that that edited his book. And uh, and so when we were pitching the book around to different editors and different publishers and things like that, you know, we went to Penguin Random House head headquarters and like meeting with these big shot editors. And I saw this book on his wall. It's like, oh, you have Mihai Chicks at Mihai's book. And he was like shocked that somebody knew how to pronounce the guy's name. So I think he might be responsible in part for what got me the, the, the book deal. But you know, if you look at the, that state of flow where we're so present in what we're doing so as to become immersed in it, it's like we become what we're doing. Yes. And time seems to flow by so fast. It's like we're not doing anything at all. The thing, the surefire way, the best way to enter into flow is to have sex, to do something stimulating in that regard. And, and this leads us into a state of flow without fail. If yeah. you want to become focused, it's very easy because it's pleasurable. It's very novel. There's there's hardly anything more pleasurable or novel than sex. And, and so, you know, I, I think when we 
it's possible to bring that presence to other parts of our life, but we do need to become less stimulated by default in order to, to kind of make that room and, and get there. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, it's funny. Mihai, Csikszentmihalyi, is uh, an early mentor of mine. And he encouraged oh, yeah. me when I was a, a graduate, a midlife graduate student, which was back in 2005, to pursue my work in positive psychology. So I have mm. huge regard for him and have learned a lot from him. And he's in a documentary film I made and he's been on the show. And Oh, amazing. He's, he's all that. <laughs> I hope I look like him when I'm older. Like he has a very, like, I, I think he's a very handsome man. I, I hope when my hair turns white, like when uh, the beard turns white too, that I, I look like me high chicks at me high. That, that'll be uh that'll be a life well lived. Yeah. Yeah. Ring me out. That's what I want. You know, I want to be wrung out by life when I go like there's not yeah. a drop left. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's what my plan is. We are out of time to learn more uh, about the fabulous Chris Bailey and his work. Please visit a life of productivity.com on Twitter. You can connect at Chris underscore Bailey and the book we've been talking about today is hyper focus how to be more productive in a world of distraction and not to worry chris will come back we're going to hang out some more we have just not even really uh, gotten yeah, we haven't scratched the surface we have not scratched the surface and, and we'll do more together thank you chris yeah it's nice chilling with you today thank you same, for having me same same here comes the break nothing gives happiness like a free gift Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation, honing our habits and finessing focus in an age of digital distraction. My next guest is James Clear. James is the author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Hey, James, thanks for joining us. Hi, so good to talk to you. Let's just jump right in here. Let's talk about the fundamentals of atomic habits. What makes a habit 
atomic? Sure. Good question. So I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. Uh, the first meaning of the word atomic is small or tiny. And that is a central piece of my philosophy that habits should be small and easy to do. I like to refer to it as like a 1% change or just a tiny improvement. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And this is an aspect that's often overlooked about habit formation. I mean, I say in the book, you know, the holy grail of habit change is not a single 1% improvement, but a thousand of them. You're looking to layer these little changes on top of each other. And then the third and final meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three of those meanings, you understand the narrative arc of the book, which is that if you make changes that are small and easy to do and layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system, then you can end up with really powerful or remarkable results in the long run. What I like about what you've just shared is this notion of a system, that, that, that it is a synergistic process, that it's not just, okay, you change one little thing over here, then you run over to the other side of the room and change a little something over there. It's that together, everything bonds and creates this synergy that then causes change. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, it's not really just one little improvement that's going to transform your life. But if you're willing to make a commitment to continuous improvement, a commitment to layering these 1% changes on top of each other, then you can end up with a really powerful result in the long run. I want to kind of go back to your history, to your roots as an athlete, right? You were an All-American baseball pitcher, you know, a peak performance athlete, and you got there through atomic habits, whether or not you realized it or not at the time. Yeah, I didn't really have a language for it at the time. So I don't think I would have said that, you know, I was just going to practice and doing what I was supposed to and training the gym and so on. I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day. But that was the first place where I had to experience and experiment with those tactics on a daily basis. And part of that was because I suffered a very serious injury. I explained the whole story more in the book, but I was hit in the face with a baseball bat and it was a very long process of recovering from that. It took eight or nine months and really years for me to be back up to full speed. And in a sense, my hand was forced. I wasn't able to just flip a switch and radically transform. I had to just try to find a small way to get better each day because that was the only thing that was available to me. And it turns out that if you're willing to commit to that process, these small advantages or little changes that you make each day can add up into something remarkable in the long run. Well, one of the reasons why I asked you to talk a little bit about your athletic past is because most of us are good at something, that most of us have honed some skills with something that we really love. And we tend to forget that there's a correlation between the repetitive practice of those things that we love to do and our mastery of them and how that translates when you talk about atomic habit to something else, to changing something else about the way that we work or we live in the world. Well, this is something I cover later in the book, this idea that habits are the foundation for mastery. They're sort of a prerequisite for mastering any craft or any skill. In many cases, you'll see that the people who are at the top of a particular domain are those who have the most habits or they have the most portion of that domain automated and handled, you know, like in chess. You need to know where the pieces move and be able to do that on autopilot, know what the common opening sequences are and have that all memorized before you can advance to the next level of play and think about, 
okay, I'm opening this way. My opponent's going to do this and then I'll do this in response and back and forth. And usually it's the, the person who can best predict how the game will play out that will advance and ultimately win same way in, you know, athletic or musical domains. I mean, the, you know, the musician who can master the majority of playing on autopilot, who has the best habits has the attention and energy available to focus on the higher level portions of play. And so in that sense, habits create the foundation for mastery. And when we talk about habits and sort of the habituation that goes on in the brain, it is almost that autopilot or doing by rote that allows us to then take our focus onto other areas that improve the mastery of it. So like the foundations get laid we are able to do whatever that thing is, whether it's uh, musically, athletically, or creatively in some other outlet that goes automated, but then allows the brain to kick in and improve. I mean, talk a little bit more about that, about that, that crossroads, because there are two things that are happening, right? There's the solidification of the habit and then the, the growth that allows the improvement. One way I like to think about habits is they are solutions to recurring problems that you face. So as you go through life, you face a variety of challenges. Some of them are big, some are small. But, you know, say, for example, you put your shoe on each morning and your shoe is untied. In a sense, that's a problem, small problem that your brain needs to solve. But because it faces it again and again, the very first time you tie your shoe, it's effortful. You have to think carefully about how to do it and how to secure the knot and so on. But then after you do it a hundred or 500 or a thousand times, pretty soon you're tying your shoes on autopilot. You don't even have to think about it. You can hold a conversation with somebody while you tie your shoes. You can think about your to-do list for the morning and so on. And this is sort of the role or the purpose that habits play. They allow your brain to automate solutions to the recurring problems that you face, to the repeated context that you find yourself in. And whenever you find yourself in a fairly similar situation, you know, not all your shoes look exactly the same, but you pull a shoe on and you realize, oh, this is when I need to call on that habit, that cognitive script. It's sort of like a mental shortcut that your brain can use to get to the solution without having to allocate conscious attention and energy. And because it can do that, because you can perform the solution on autopilot, now you have resources, energy, uh, attention available to focus on other aspects of life. And so ultimately, that's the the biological or neurological purpose that habits serve. They allow you to solve the problems of life with less attention and energy. And uh, that gives you leftover resources to focus on the other challenges that you may face. So in that sense, habits help us survive and move throughout the world fluidly and efficiently. Well, and the structure that habits provide are very comforting to the human psyche. Like we do well when there is structure, when there is ritual, when there is a schedule to our day. These habits help us optimize our performance, but you also talk about how they shape our identity. And I know we're going to need to take a break in a minute, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that in the book, Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. You talk about this, about habits shaping identity, and I'm very curious about this. So we often talk about habits as a method for achieving external results, right? Habits can help you lose weight or make more money or be more productive or reduce stress. And it's true. Habits can do all of those things. Um, but I think the deeper reason that habits matter, the greater purpose or um, really one of the reasons I thought writing Atomic Habits was so important 
is because habits not only are the path to achieving external results, they're also the method through which we can reshape or um, update or expand our internal identity, our self-image, our sense of self. And the way that this happens is gradual, but it makes sense. So, you know, each time you perform a habit, you, in a sense, are embodying a particular identity. Whenever you perform the habit of making your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Whenever you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. Whenever you sit down and write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And in a way, it's like every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. And at first, you do these things once or twice, and it doesn't shift your identity in any major way. But as you repeat them, as you make a habit out of it, you accumulate these votes. It's like you build up this little mountain of evidence And as the evidence accumulates, the scales start to tip in favor of that belief. And you turn around after a month or three months or six months or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, man, you know, I meditate five days a week. I guess I'm a meditator. And so now (laughs) you've adopted that identity. And ultimately, and I write this in the book, the goal is not to achieve an outcome. Like the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. It's not really about achieving any particular outcome. It's about developing that kind of identity because it's it's one thing to say like i want this but it's something very different to say i am this and in a sense like true behavior change is just identity change well i i like what you just said because it really is about becoming the architect of our lives and these habits allow us to optimize that journey we're going to take a break and when we do we'll come back and continue the conversation with james clear we're talking about his new book atomic habits an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. The website to learn more is jamesclear.com, on Twitter at jamesclear, Facebook, that page is also jamesclear, and on Instagram, we are at james underscore clear. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about honing our habits and finessing our focus in an age of digital distraction. My guest today is James Clear. He is the author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. So James, prior to the break, we were talking about how habits help us shape our identity and some of the building blocks to better habits. But in the book, Atomic Habits, you break it down into basically four laws. And I'd love for you to share what those are with the audience. Sure. So one of my core purposes or hopes with writing the book was to give people an actionable framework that they could use for building good habits or breaking bad ones that in daily life and work and so on. And in the book, I kind of describe every habit as going through four stages. So cue, craving, response, and reward. And I'll kind of cover those as we go through the four laws here. But essentially, from those four stages evolve these four laws of behavior change. And the four laws of behavior change for building a good habit are for the cue, you want to make it obvious. So you want the cues that prompt your habits to be obvious and available and uh, readily visible. For the second stage, the craving, you want to make your habits attractive. The more attractive a habit is, the more likely it will be to occur. So that's the second law of behavior change, make it attractive. For the third law, you want to make it easy. And for the fourth law, you want to make it satisfying. And so those four, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. That describes how to build a good habit. And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those four laws. So rather than having it be obvious, you want to make it invisible. Rather than unattractive, you want to make your bad habits unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And so the inversion of those four give you a framework for breaking a bad habit. And then, of course, throughout the book, I go through many, many examples of how to do each of those. And uh, we'll cover some of them right now. So when we talk about adapting a habit and sort of making it stick, you know, I think that that's what many of us complain about. We, we start to do something new. We say we want to adopt this new habit as part of our our daily practice, their ritual or routine, but the stickiness becomes elusive. Give us some tips for making it easier to maintain the habit shift. Yeah, great question. So there's kind of like two major challenges when building a habit. The first one is getting started and the second one is sticking with it. And for consistency, the key factor is uh, the fourth stage or that fourth law, which is make it satisfying. And the reason that's true is that whenever a habit is followed by a satisfying ending, whenever the ending is enjoyable or rewarding, it's kind of like a positive emotional signal to your brain where it says, hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time or remember what you just did. That got you the result that you wanted. So in a sense, making habits satisfying is like the key factor in getting them to stick in the long run. So let me give you some examples of that for many habits. And this is particularly true for what I would call like habits of avoidance. So things like don't drink alcohol for 30 days or don't spend money on Amazon or stop going out to eat and cook dinner uh, more instead. Habits like that are inherently difficult to build because there is no satisfaction in just resisting the temptation. You know, like if instead of buying something on Amazon, you're just asking yourself to sit with that craving or that temptation and not do it. And that's not very rewarding. I'm thinking I'm building the list on the sidelines. You know, I, I can hold up, <laughs> I can white knuckle it, but the list is there. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, it feels like you have to white knuckle it, like you have to push through or force it. And instead, I think it's more productive to kind of flip this on its head. And uh, so, for example, I have a reader, he and his wife, they wanted to go out to eat less and cook dinner at home more often. 
And so they opened up a savings account and labeled it trip to Europe. And then whenever they didn't go out to eat, so usually they would just be resisting the urge to go to a restaurant. And again, that's not very rewarding. They would move $50 over into the savings account. And so they could see their savings account build. And then at the end of the year, they put the money toward the, the vacation. But the point is that was just a little thing that added a small bit of immediate satisfaction to cooking the meal at home. Sure, they didn't get to eat out at the restaurant, but they got to see the savings account build and their vacation uh, fund grow. And so that little bit of immediate satisfaction gave them some reason to stick with it and do it again the next time. Similarly, you can if you track your habits. So like for me, I write down all of my workouts and uh, at the end of a workout, it's not a huge thing, but it feels good to close the book on another workout and write down what sets and reps that you did and feel like you accomplished something or completed something. And so visual measures of tracking are another way to add a little layer of immediate satisfaction to a habit that otherwise doesn't feel that rewarding in the moment. You make a really good point because we are pleasure seeking missiles us humans. We really want to scratch the itch whenever we, we think we want something. So the idea of this couple putting away this money I think it was probably a big surprise to them at the end of the year how much they actually had saved. Oh, sure. Yeah, you can. I mean, this is true for many habits is that the reward up front feels small, but then, you know, you turn around six months or a year or two years later and like they've accumulated to a surprising degree. And this is just so this is one reason why I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. They similar to how money multiplies through compound interest the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. And so uh, in any given moment, it doesn't feel like you're doing a whole lot, but in the long run, it can be very significant. And talk a little bit about accountability partnership, because a married couple or a partnered couple, I mean, the idea that you support one another, and it doesn't even have to be somebody that you're sleeping in the same bed with. I mean, it can be anybody that is sharing a similar interest in, in, in personal improvement. That role of showing up to support the other and to sort of uh, lay truth to what you're doing is super important. For sure. I mean, it can benefit you in multiple ways. I mean, first of all, it, depending on the partner that you have or the accountability partner that you're working with, if they are the type of person who's good at praising, who's good at supporting you and encouraging you, then it just it feels good to be praised. And so in many cases, doing something, uh, we will perform actions just to get the praise uh, separate from the action itself. You know, like if you're if your spouse really loves it, that you uh, exercise and work out with them. And after you go to the gym, they tell you, oh, you know, I'm so happy that we get to share this time together or you did a great job at the gym today. In many cases, you'll want to work out just to get that praise separate from the benefit of the workout itself. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> so that's that's one way that it feels good. But even if your uh, accountability partner is not someone who's heavy on praise, they can still serve an important role. Because remember, I mentioned that for the four laws of behavior change, the fourth law is make it satisfying. But you can invert that to make it unsatisfying for bad habits. So imagine, for example that your bad habit is you sleep in longer than you would like rather than getting up and going for a run early in the morning, for example. So you want to go for a run at 6 a.m., but 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is warm and you don't want to get out and it feels good. Well, if it's just you who's trying to do that, then it's easy to stay in bed. But if you tell a friend, hey, I'll meet you at the park at 6 a.m., 
then all of a sudden it becomes very unsatisfying to stay in bed because you look like a jerk because you leave your friend there. And that's separate from whether they praise you for it or not. You just don't want to be judged or come across as a bad friend. And so accountability partners serve this this other role as well of providing accountability and responsibility for not falling through on your promises. Because when we don't fall through on our promises to ourselves, that hurts, but sometimes it's easy for us to justify it or find a mental workaround. But when we don't follow through on our promises to others, that's painful because we know we're being judged. And so accountability partners can be helpful there as well. And also support the shaping of our identity. I mean, I, personally, I want to be known as the one that shows up, right? Like that's really important to me. That's a, a core value to myself. So if I feel that I'm going to disappoint somebody by not showing up and following through with my word, which is a form of currency, right? I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just part of my habit. And I'm sure you have similar ones in that way that you're quite rigid about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, your identity is socially reinforced uh, in sometimes just in what you would think the other person's going to assume, like what you just mentioned there. Oh, if I show if I don't show up, then they'll be upset or think I'm you know, not following through on my word or whatever. And that that helps reinforce or shape that identity. But it's also shaped by the feedback that you get from the people around you. So, for example, uh, you know, if, if a friend tells you, oh, you're so good, you're always on time. Well, that reinforces this idea of I'm the kind of person who shows up. I'm the kind of person who's there. I'm reliable. I'm ready. And so that little bit of feedback socially uh, helps reinforce the identity that you have internally. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the software portion in this. I mean, what you've outlined for us here from Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones, which is your new book. Um, you talk about these four laws, you know, to and, and let's recap, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. What about the very human factor, the heart and how it connects with others as you are trying to you know, trailblaze and be better and go to places and expand where one has not been before? It's a great question. And actually, one of the core things that I felt was missing from some of the habits literature when I researched and was writing the book is to account for the role of emotions, feelings, beliefs, thoughts, and how those influence our actions and habits. And so there are two stages in particular, the second stage, which I refer to as craving, but really is about how you predict or interpret the experiences you 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 face throughout life. And the fourth stage, making it satisfying and the amount of pleasure or enjoyment that you get out of uh, each experience that account for the role of emotions in shaping our behavior. And so, for example, you know, you come across a variety of cues throughout your daily life, but you run all of those cues, all of the things that you see and experience, you feel, you smell, you hear, you run through them, your worldview, you run those cues through your worldview. And because of that, emotion plays a role in how you interpret things. You know, if you're angry, then you look at those cues in a different way. If you're joyful, then you see them in a different light. So in many ways, the prediction or interpretation that you make, and thus the response that follows is uh, influenced by the current emotional state that you're in. And uh, this is one reason why it makes sense when people say things like, follow your heart, for example, what we could translate that into for my particular language about habits is do the type of habit that is most joyful to you or that is most enjoyable to you. You know, there take the 
habit of exercise. There are many styles of that. You, not everybody has to lift like a bodybuilder. You could go kayaking or you do yoga or go hiking or, you know, all kinds of things. And so the point here is that there are many different forms of the same habit. And uh, because emotion plays a role in how attractive and satisfying habits are to you, it makes sense to choose the form that is best for you or that resonates most with you rather than just the form that society says you should do. And as you're talking, I'm also thinking about the necessity to be adaptable, that, you know, once we have a grasp on these habits and life is moving in the direction that we choose, inevitably, because this is how life seems to flow, there are curveballs and how good habit formation also helps us adjust, course correct and remain motivated even when things don't go well. Well, I think there are two pieces here. So the first piece is that sometimes people will ask me like, oh, you know, do habits make your life boring? I don't want to pigeonhole myself into one lifestyle. What about being spontaneous or going with the flow? Like, I don't want to become a robot. I think that's mostly a false dichotomy. Habits do not restrict freedom. They create it. It's often the people who have the worst habits that have the least amount of freedom. You know, if you have poor financial habits, then you're always wondering where the next dollar will come from. If you have bad health habits, then you never feel like you have enough energy. Um, if you have poor learning habits, then you always feel like you're behind the curve. But the people who have those habits mastered and handled and dialed in, they have the space and the resources available to be more spontaneous or creative or free thinking and so on. So the first thing is that, yes, I think habits uh, develop a little bit of robustness for you to deal with the unexpected urgencies and emergencies of life. But the second aspect is that, and we talked about this earlier, habits are tied to a context. They are associated with a particular recurring problem that you face. And one thing that is true about the world is that it never changed or it uh, never stays the same. It's always changing. It's not mm -hmm. static. And because the world is not static and circumstances are evolving, that means your habits need to remain fluid as well. You know, if you remain limber, then you are able to adjust when life throws you a curveball that you're not expecting. And so I guess my point here is that we're looking to build habits that allow us to have a solid foundation so that we can handle the craziness that life throws at us. But we don't want to be so strict that we try to force ourselves to fit into a single mold, because if you do that, then you become brittle rather than flexible. And um, ultimately, your habits will have to evolve as life uh, requires. We are out of time today, and I want to send our listeners over to your website. The book we've been talking about is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Visit www.jamesclear.com. On Twitter, you can connect with James at James Clear. On Facebook, that page is James Clear. And on Instagram, James underscore Clear. I'd love for you to come back and talk more about this because you've really broken this down, I think, in such a positively rudimentary way that it can help anybody. I mean, I can see how a young adult struggling in college could benefit from this. I could see somebody who's going through a midlife career change can benefit from this because you're really speaking to the foundation of how change happens. 
Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. And I hope that people will find the book actionable and practical and useful. So thank you again. Thank you. And once again, that's Atomic Habits. Here comes the break. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Chris Bailey and James Clear, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.